I was thinking, as a kid growing up, uh, the 4th of July was just the most important holiday of the year because it was summertime, the chance to get in the swimming pool, which was a highlight. Um, there was a little park called Streamline Park up in Pico Rivera. Pico Rivera was a, 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 just a little rural town back in, when I was a kid, and uh, they had a, a, a train that ran on the railroad there, a little, little uh, small-gauge railroad. Uh, they had a lake there, and uh, there was always uh, the watermelon. Watermelon was big with my dad and my family. So Fourth of July has always been a very special day for me, as it will be this year. Uh, <clears throat> one of the problems when you you don't preach every week, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff that builds up inside of you, and the topic grows and grows and grows, and so there has to be some editing. And so I probably have outlined at least 12 different sermons. <laughs> and uh, you can tell that that would be very time-consuming, wouldn't it? So I've tried to pare it down, pare it down, and pare it down. Uh, Rod mentioned that my uh, doctorate uh, is a theology doctorate. And so that would tell you that I'm really very much interested in Theology, and particularly systematic theology. Now, <clears throat> it depends on the theologian. Uh, uh, some will have maybe 10, 12 divisions of systematic theology. I studied uh, a book by Emery Bancroft, old, old book, and it had 10 divisions. So as I was studying the book of Jonah, I thought, my goodness, look at this book. Uh, there in nugget form are all these wonderful theological insights. They're fabulous insights. And I thought about Mackenzie. Let me tell you about Mackenzie. She's my firstborn granddaughter. And uh, Mackenzie was about 18 months old, and she uh, really talked earlier. A very precocious little girl, and of course adored. Her great aunt and great uncle had her in the car, and they were down uh, near Malibu someplace. Mackenzie looked at the Pacific Ocean for the first time, and she said, big swimming pool. <laughs> and when I look at the book of Jonah, it's a big swimming pool. It's not just the story of a great fish. It's not just the story of a renegade prophet. It's not just the story of a penitent nation, but it is at its core the story of a great and mighty God. And it's that God I want to talk to you about this morning. So uh, if you happen to have your Bibles, uh, Open with me to the fourth chapter of Jonah. If not, the, uh, the text will be up on the screen. I have a new knee, and I had a heart ablation, so I'm much stronger than I was the last time I spoke to you. However, I am old. <laughs> and so conserving strength is a very important thing. Thus, the stool. 
There's three very important points that I want us to see about God in this text. It's of interest that in 1778, uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, John Adams, and Ben Franklin uh, chose the motto, and the Congress of the United States adopted it, E Pluribus Unum, which means many of one. But in 1956, the Congress of the United States changed the motto and the great seal of America to, in God we trust. And so my point this morning is to talk to you about the God in whom we trust. And so it is indeed not just a story about a person, nor the story about a nation. It is the story about the God in whom we trust. Now, the first uh, point that I want to draw from this text is about God in terms of his patience. God is a patient God. He's an amazing God in that regard because he puts up with the profligate and the petulant. Now, what do I mean by profligate? A profligate is a wasteful kind of person, uh, takes his talents, takes his energies, takes her talents, her energies, and just wastes them. Kind of person that lives basically an ungodly life. And in this case, there's a profligate nation. It's called Assyria. And Assyria was the dominant power of the day in which uh, Jonah lived. They were a ruthless nation. They were an evil people. And from a human perspective, Jonah had every right to be very angry with these people. So it's a story of a profligate nation, but it's also the story of a petulant prophet. When I think of Jonah, you know, one of the names of God in the Hebrew name for God is Yahweh. It's translated Jehovah, and then in the New Testament, it becomes the Lord. So Yahweh comes to Jonah, and he says, uh, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And Jonah says, no way, Yahweh. And then God's response to him is, oh, yeah? And so when I think about the book of Jonah, I think that God said go. Jonah said no. God said oh. <laughs> and Jonah said whoa. <laughs> and then he has a well of an experience, doesn't he? <laughs> she spends some time in the depths of the sea. Well, listen to what Jonah has to say about God in this text, in the first four verses. Jonah says this, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say, before I left home, that you would do this, Lord? That you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. Now, listen to this. I knew 
that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager, and let me emphasize that, you are eager to turn back from destroying people. And then he says this, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive. What I predicted uh, will not happen. What I predicted will not happen. What had he predicted? Jonah, uh, that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days. So he's really ticked at God. He's upset at God. It didn't go my way. Thus, to me, Jonah is a petulant prophet. To be petulant is that you're pouty, you're moody, you're angry, you're upset. When I think about Jonah, I think that um, he was reluctant. He was a reluctant prophet. Begrudgingly, he did what God had asked him to do. He had to have the belly of the fish experience before he would acquiesce to the will of God. God had to twist his arm. Then when I think about Jonah, I think about a man who... Uh, uh, suffered miserably because of his attitude. He is passionate. He's angry. He's upset because things didn't go his way. Well, when I think about Ron Williams, that'd be me. <clears throat> I see two people that live in me, two characteristics that live in me. I've been a profligate. There have been wasteful seasons in my life. There have been the times when I have used that which God has given me, not for his benefit, but for mine. You may relate to that. Not only that, I have been petulant with God when it didn't go the way I thought it should. And I've been angry at God. And I've told God how he's failed. I've done that at times in my life. I see. I see there's a, there's a petulance about my personality. I'm a profligate in many ways. And I really do need a redeemer. I really do need a savior, just as you do. And so when I look at this man, Jonah, I see a lot of myself in him. And that leads me that, to do something about it. But aren't we thankful that God puts up with us. Isn't he a wonderful, patient God? His mercy endures forever. You just can't wear God out. He's a faithful, loving God, even when we are not. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, even when we're faithless, God is faithful, seeing that he cannot deny himself, because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. He's the ever faithful one to you. Second movement in the text, uh, second point, not only is God uh, patient, but God is also preeminent. And that goes something like this. He has no equal in heaven, nor on earth. 
However, he has many, many rivals. Think about that with me a little bit. God has, is unequal. You know, we all would subscribe to that. We would own that. The God that we serve, the God of the Bible, is unequal. He's above all others. But how many rival gods are there? Kirsten Collins, our pastor's wife, uh, recommended a book. Anita, my wife, picked it up on Facebook. It's entitled Gods at War, Defeating the Idols that Battle for Your Heart. And it's by Kyle Idler Mann. Excellent read. Uh, Anita uh, has a Kindle, and so she orders her books online. Uh, I'm, I'm old school old school, and I have to have the hard copies so I can mark it all up. So all of my books, are, after I get through them, are basically unreadable <laughs> because my hand is shaky and I cross out things I meant just to underline. <laughs> but I need to do that because it helps me remember. So I went online and I ordered a copy. I found a deal on eBay. I think I paid $4.95 for it. It's in the mail, and I don't even have to pay shipping. It's a great, great book because it addresses the idea of the idols in our lives. And, and think about that. When I say that he has no equal in heaven and he has no equal on earth, what I am saying to you is that there is a heavenly sphere. There's a spiritual sphere in which God uh, 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 is at work. Billy Graham would say, if our eyes were open, we would see uh, the masses of spiritual beings out there that far outnumber who we are. There's a whole unseen realm out there. There are principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, but there is also God's holy army out there. And we read about those great angels in the Old Testament, the angels at the tomb of Jesus, uh, uh, at the resurrection, the angels that would appear to the Old Testament prophets and the angels that would appear to the apostles in the New Testament. There's a whole unseen reality out there that's a powerful reality. And you and I are an earth earthly. And when we look at earth earthly, we know all of the vices that are out there, all of the temptations that are out there. And so there can be Many, many, M-A-N-Y, M-I-N-I, gods, G-O-D-E, lowercase, there can be many, many gods in our lives. And those gods sometimes are good, or we think them to be good, and sometimes they're evil. And the evil ones are easily there, uh, easy to recognize. I know one of the gods of my life that I've got to put down is my Sinful nature. There's two words that you need to be aware of in the Greek New Testament. One is sarke, S-A-R-X. Uh, an X in Greek is a sound. So it's sarke. And sarke has to do with your fallen, sinful nature. And you're strapped with that personality until the day you die. It isn't going to leave, and you'll kill it every day of your life, but it won't stay dead. In my life, dealing with lust and greed and anger and rage, 
theft, you name it. Uh, if I haven't done it, I've certainly thought it. I've killed so many people, I should be in jail. In my mind. Because of my anger. But did you ever think that perhaps a more subtle God, little G, might be your kids? <clears throat> might be your business. It might be your marriage. And we would say those are good things. It might be your recreation. It might be church. That's one of my idols. My wife said to me one day, Ron, you have a mistress. What? <laughs> she said, yes, it's the church. I was busted. It was dead on. The church meant more to me than my family, than my marriage. You see, I wanted to be a very, very successful pastor, driven by ego and pride. I wanted to shine. I wanted to stand out. And I really worked hard to do it. But there were, were some very negative outcomes to that. It took God speaking to me in intensive care in 1993 with pneumonia. I was given 48 hours to live. The pneumonia was so, so I, I was so sick with People were praying everywhere. And in the midst of in, in, intensive care, uh, they had uh, suctioned my lungs. And I was just so weak. And I was lying there in the bed. It was about midnight. And uh, because I couldn't get out of bed to take care of my, uh, my, my bathroom needs, my bowels gave away. And it was just a mess. And I just started to weep. I said, God, I was like Jonah, just kill me. <laughs> I am so embarrassed. I am so embarrassed. So eventually I rang the nurses. They come in, and they're so good. You know, they clean me up and in two or three minutes, and I'm fresh in bed. The Lord spoke to my heart. And he spoke to my heart about you're so busy doing. I just want you to be. I just want you to be my child. I just want you to be my loving friend. I, I don't need you to get it done. And you don't need a great church, because what is that? I've said many times in latter years, Show me what the church is supposed to look like, and I'll try to build it. <laughs> but it's like people, and it's like flowers, and it's like trees. It's like cities. It comes in all different shapes and sizes. But there is one, one commonality that it has. It has a Savior. It has a Lord. And that Lord is preeminent. And the Apostle Paul describes him in the first chapter of Colossians, and if you are not familiar with uh, that portion of Scripture, oh, do yourself a favor, study it. And what you'll see described there, that Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He doesn't mean that he's physically the firstborn. What Paul's talking about, he's the preeminent one. He's supreme in all things. 
By him were all things created, and we know nothing that was created was not, it, it was all created by him. He is the sustainer. He is the glue that holds all things together. He is the one that reconciles the fallen world to himself. He is Lord of heaven, and he is Lord of earth. He is the preeminent one. Obviously, he wasn't the preeminent one to Jonah. Jonah thought of himself more highly than he thought of his God. And, and listen to the text. It's an amazing text. Verse 5 says, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. So we know God and uh, controls fish, he controls plants, and he is also in charge of worms. And so, uh, uh, the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. I think it's kind of like those green worms that get on your tomato plants. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. So this God also controls storms at sea and storms on land, doesn't he? He's large, and he is truly in charge, okay? Then the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. And for the second time, God says to him, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because of the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Seems like this guy doesn't learn quickly. Seems like he is petulant. He's sassy. He's in God's face. He's pouting. Well, what's God to do? God is patient. God is preeminent. But God is passionate. So this is what we read. Then Jonah said, verse 10, You feel sorry for the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came out quickly, and it died quickly. But Nineveh, now this would be the Assyrian Empire. This would be about 800 years before Christ, the premier nation in the world, has more than 120 people, 120,000 persons, our people, living in spiritual darkness. Now, the old translations have it has 120,000 people, 
that don't know their right hand from their left. I think God is talking about little ones, children. Ask a little child, which is your left hand? Which is your right hand? The little child doesn't know. Jesus said, allow the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. God loves little ones. Not only that, he adds, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for a great city? God's passion. He came into the world to redeem and restore which had been lost. Peter answering the critic of his day, people who were asking, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, he hasn't kept his promise. And Peter says this, he says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's heart is for sinners. God's heart is for the lost of the world. Instead of Jesus, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It is said also uh, of, of Jesus uh, that uh, uh, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might have life, and that life, they might have a life that's more abundant. So God's heart is passionate for the lost. So I ask you on this 4th of July weekend, what is your heart passionate about? Is it passionate about your success in life, your graduation from college, uh, the mates you might pick, your spouse, your children, your family? What are you most passionate about? I believe when we yield our lives to Jesus Christ, when we surrender to him in the fullest ways possible, then his heart becomes our hearts. And all the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of how God would come and he would create in his people a new heart. Jonah's problem was not in his head. He knew these wonderful things about God. Jonah's problem was in his heart. He didn't have God's heart. He wanted God to wipe them out. And I can tell you this, having been at this job for more than 60 years now, I can tell you this, that I've watched the stages and phases of church life. And people who get so ambitious for Jesus to come, they're, they're, they're wanting the world to get worse and worse so Jesus can come. They're looking for a way of escape rather than saying, how do we lead the lost to Christ? So let me conclude with three sons. Two of them stand out, but you may have missed the third. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. Young boy came to his father and said, I want my inheritance. 
father willingly gave him his inheritance, and he went out and he wasted it. Came to himself while eating what's fed to the pigs, and he said, the servants in my father's house live better than I'm living right now. I'll go home to dad. I'll square things around, and I'll tell dad, I'm willing just to be your servant, father. And then there's the story of the son that stayed home. When the prodigal returned, he pouted. He was petulant. He was Jonah-like. And uh, father throws a big party for the son. But the older brother, he doesn't want to come. And he pouts. He withdraws. And yet a patient, wonderful, earthly father says, You've been with me all the time, and all that I have is yours. It's right that we celebrate the return of your brother. But the third son is the son that's telling the story. It's the son of God. And the son of God came in the fullness of time, sent by the father. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.